0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continue to give us a vision for eternity. Lord, show us what our relationship with you is going to be like there. And Lord, I pray in seeing that vision, you would help us in the here and now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start things off today with a little game. It's name that tune, okay? You ready? I'm going to give you the first verse, and then if you don't get it, I'll give you the chorus. You'll probably get it from there. Okay, when I'm driving in my car, and the man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. Anybody? Can't get no satisfaction, satisfaction, my man. Yeah, he says, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction, because I try and I try and I try and I try. Can't get no satisfaction. Who is it? Rolling Stones. Stones. All right. Good deal. Um, So Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. What he's talking about in this song, in this first verse, is that when he's driving in the car, a guy comes on the radio and telling him more and more about some useless information trying to stir his imagination. He's talking about advertising. He's talking about the consumeristic world that we live in. Now I think it's funny because this song was written 55 years ago. Right? And as much as it it would be annoying to be... uh, you know, to hear a, a radio advertising telling you about something that you need. We are inundated with so much more, aren't we? I mean, think about it. We have television. We have billboards. We have our smartphones. We have social media. All these things. And, and the gist of it is this. You need more things and you need better things. And the unspoken premise behind it is this. That self-fulfillment leads to satisfaction. That self-fulfillment leads to satisfaction. So if I can get what I want or I can do the things that I desire, then I will be satisfied. And I think it's funny because Mick Jagger uh, wrote these words and he's been singing them now for 55 years and dancing around on stage. But he has access to way more than we will ever have access to in life, right? And he's still singing, I can't get no satisfaction. He's really tested this uh, thesis out. but the assumption behind this idea that self-fulfillment leads to satisfaction is that this life is all there is. So you've got to get it all in now. But the challenge is that desire for more, what that can leave us in is an immense amount of debt, right? We are, I think, the most indebted culture that's ever existed on the planet. And that desire for more experiences, that I've got to do more, that leaves us exhausted and over busy with our schedule filled up lots with lots of good things, but we're exhausted. And what I think it robs us of is this, simple contentedness. To be content with the things that we have and to be content with the season of life that we're going through. On top of it, I think this idea of self-fulfillment leads to satisfaction. This idea really can erode our relationships. So this idea, if you're entering into, you know, if you're getting married, this idea can be really destructive for a marriage. That me and getting my needs met is the most important thing and that's how I'll be satisfied, right? I mean, let's take for example, washing the dishes in a marriage, right? Does anybody feel a deep sense of self-fulfillment while washing the dishes? (laughs) One guy actually raised his hand. Gus, clearly not. But another a guy was like, and he talked to me after the service, he's like, I really love cleaning the dishes. And I'm like, okay, sorry, bad example. But the point is that part of what makes for a good marriage, makes you a good partner in a marriage, is your willingness to give up your desires, your need to be fulfilled at all times to serve the other person. Same goes for our at parenting and our families, right? A big part of what makes you a good parent is your willingness to forego what you want, when you want it, in order to make this other life thrive. And it also goes for caring for those in need. Caring for those who are suffering. It requires us giving up our time, giving up our resources to come alongside those, to deny what we want to be able to give life to another person. And so, it's short-sighted, this idea that self-fulfillment leads to satisfaction. And I think a lot of times it goes back to this idea that I have to squeeze it all out of life now because this is all the life that there is. And what the scriptures actually tell us is that our life, this life, is actually a blip on the radar screen of eternity. And that the things, the pleasures of this life, actually pale in comparison To the future pleasures that we're going to experience for eternity. So what I want to look at today, we're in the sermon series on heaven living in light of eternity, is how when we look ahead to heaven and we look ahead to our relationship with God in heaven, actually that helps us with decisions that we have here and now, especially the hard decisions. The decision not to buy that thing, to live more simply. The decision to sacrifice your time and yourself So that other another person can thrive. So here's my main point. Ready? It's we can live a life of sacrifice and simplicity now. Because we know we will be satisfied then. That we can live a life of simplicity and sacrifice now. Because we know we will be satisfied then. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're going to be in Revelation 22. Very end of the Bible. Last page of the Bible. Pretty cool. And we're going to be looking at two things. We're going to be looking at the place. We're going to be looking more at heaven, kind of getting a bigger picture of heaven. And then we're going to be looking at the person that going to be, that we're going to be in relationship with there, the person of God. So the first thing is the place. So this is Revelation 22. We've already talked about how we're going to be in a new heaven and a new earth. It's we're going to have a physical body, a physical resurrected body, and a physical earth as well. So we'll be fully spiritual, fully physical for eternity. And he's, uh, the, the writer is unpacking what this is going to look like. So here we are, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Oftentimes, when I'm doing an Alpha or rooted retreat, we'll do a little bit of a mixer game just to get people moving around. And I'll, and I'll say, you know, everybody that likes nature, prefers nature, go on this side. And then everybody that likes Uh, the city go on this side, like being in the city. And there's invariably like two or three people that are in the city. And the people in nature are like, we're more spiritual than you are. Um, (laughs) And at first glance, if you look at this passage, what we see is it seems to be painting a picture that uh, echoes Eden. Right? Because what we have is this beautiful river flowing from the throne of God. And we see the tree of life, the tree of life all the way back. From Genesis 1 and 2 is here present at Revelation 22. The tree of life is there. And so what we get is this picture of this naturally beautiful place. And for nature lovers you're always thinking kind of what's your bucket list? Like where do I want to go before I die? You know whether it's the Grand Canyon, I want to go to Victoria Falls. And we can get into this sense of like what's the next great place that I can go and see? And what scriptures tell us is that we'll actually be able to enjoy all of the physical beauty of this earth for eternity in heaven. but We'll have as much time as we want to explore every nook and cranny. And so it relieves us of that sense of urgency. I have to do it all. We have to go in debt. We got to go on this trip. Now is it just going to be like an Edenic paradise? A a garden? Is that what eternity is going to be like? And if you look closer at this passage, it says this, that the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So actually, it is going to both be a natural paradise, but it's also going to be a city. That it's going to be natural and cultural. So what that means is that all of the wonders of human ingenuity, what we have done as humans... When God said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, steward it, and we've created all these wonderful things, these big cities. Because if you think about what a city is, right, there's, there's, in every square inch of a city, there's just so much rich culture and creativity and beautiful buildings and all this kind of stuff. And what we're told here is that heaven is going to be a city, God is going to be the architect of that city, but all of the technological advancements and all of these things that we've experienced for, for all of human history are going to be present there. There's going to be architecture and music and art and all of these different things more beyond our imagination than we can think about. So... You might be thinking, well, that just sounds like earth. I can go to New York City. It's a pretty cool city. The difference is, whereas a city is where there's this concentrated amount of culture and human ingenuity, there's also oftentimes a concentrated amount of sin and brokenness. And so the difference of what a new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem, the cities and the new creation, the difference is, look in verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. So we'll have all the wonders of human ingenuity, but without the curse of the fall, that has a way of turning those things back on ourselves. So the first thing is we get this picture in heaven of a garden city. Is everybody tracking with me? Alright, so it's a beautiful, naturally beautiful, and culturally beautiful. All right. second thing is this, and this is a question that people ask all the time, so we're just going to cover it. There's some questions we won't get covered, but I think this is an important one, especially for those that are starting to get hungry. Thinking about what's gonna, what am I going to eat for lunch? Um, what we eat in heaven. Are we going to eat in heaven? We, people love to eat here on earth. You have our foodies, they're always thinking about, like, where's the best place to get pizza in Jacksonville? Or, this place has the best burger, this is the best restaurant, and it gets heated. And we can think, man, I got I to gotta, you know, taste as much as I can on this earth, right? Eat, drink, be married, for tomorrow we'll die. Millennials are particularly suspect, right? I was, everybody loves to make fun of Millennials and I'm a millennial so I'll make fun of myself here. Um, I was reading an article recently that said that Millennials spend more money on food than they do on savings and their retirement combined. Just on restaurants actually, sorry, not just grocery bills, just on restaurants. And so, and what is that? That comes from this desire. We love food. We're meant to enjoy food. But it just, it's, it's running us into debt. You know, it's like, oh man. You know, we're not thinking about the future because we're focused on the present. And what's the next great place to eat? And this one, I think, is 25% of millennials um, spend more money on coffee than they do on, <laughs> on their savings and their retirement. Pretty crazy. Um, but, so will there be food in heaven? Do we got to get it all in? It's, you know, it's the best pizza place here in Jacksonville. Are we going to get good pizza in heaven? What's that going to be like? Um, so right here in our passage, it says this. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And what this symbolizes that uh, the commentators say is that river represents all the good things that flow from the presence of God. You notice where it's flowing from is a throne, from God himself and the Lamb. And so what they're telling us is that, that what commentators say is that every joy and delight comes from God's hand and heart. And this actually echoes the psalm that we read today. where it says, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Revelation 19:9 9 says, "Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. So the picture that we get of what heaven's going to be like is that of a feast of marriage supper." And Jesus told his disciples before he left, and Luke 22, he says this, "And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom." So the p- picture that we get is that of feasting in heaven, so there will be food. But feasting involves more than just food. It's also highly relational. Think about some of the best conversations you've had, some of the best stories you've heard, some of the hardest times you've laughed. Oftentimes they're around food, aren't they? And what we're told is that in eternity, we're going to be enjoying meals together I, I love food and there's our favorite restaurant. I'm not going to say what it is because then somebody's going to be like, that's not the best restaurant. I'll show you the best. But we went to the, our, the, our favorite restaurant this past week because my brother-in-law and sister-in-law are in town and, and they're pregnant with their first child. So we wanted to celebrate. And this place has small plates in the late afternoon that are about half the price. So we're like, let's go, you know, let's not break the bank on this. And so we went to this place and we were sitting down and we sat there for a couple hours Just enjoying great food, conversation. And you know how it is when you eat really good food cooked by a great chef. Not only does it taste better, but you taste more. Like there's just flavors like, man, I've never tasted that before. That's so good. And we, we, we sat for a couple hours just talking and laughing and enjoying ourselves. And in exaltation, my brother-in-law, who's not a super emotional guy, he was just like at some point in the meal, he was like, there's nothing I love more than enjoying good food with people that I love. And I thought, that's a foretaste of heaven. Where we're going to enjoy the richest of foods with the people that we love in relationship. And so, yes, it's going to be this garden city. We're going to enjoy great food at God's table. One passage even says, On the mountain of the Lord, a post will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That God himself will be the one who makes the food. Imagine how good that will be. So what I want to say is this. My point in bringing these things up is that we can live a life of simplicity now. that We don't have to taste everything We don't have to go to every beautiful place. We don't have to go to every great cultural thing and have every great cultural thing that we've come up with as humans. We can live a life of simplicity now because we know we'll be satisfied for eternity. Does that make sense? We can be content with what God has given us and the season we're in. So all of these things actually are just um, gifts that God has given. God is going to lavish gifts on us in heaven. But the point of all of this, the pinnacle of this passage isn't about the gifts. It's actually about our experience of the giver. The giver of the gifts. And we as humans, it's very easy to focus on the gift and look past the giver. I saw this this past week. It was really fun. Um, One of the ladies at 745 service got our son uh, Big Bird. Just like a, a little stuffed big bird. And it's the first time he's done this. You know, usually when they're like one, you give them a gift and they're like, Man, I don't know what that is. And they play with the box, you know. Um, but we, we pulled out the big bird and he was like, oh, you know, like he was so excited to see it. You know, and we tried to explain to him, you know, it was Sue Stobie that gave you the big bird. And he's like, you know, I don't, I don't know who Sue Stoby is. I don't really care. And that's oftentimes how we are. And even in heaven, we can think about all the great things that we're going to experience. But the greatest thing we're going to experience is the giver himself. And we see here in this passage, in Revelation 22, underline this in your Bible. Verse 4, it says this, And they will see his face. Five words that tells us the point of history. It tells us what we're made for and what we're destined for. And they will see his face. Think about all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When God formed man out of the ground. When he he made a woman out of the rib. And he breathed life into them. And they became a living being. Imagine somebody breathing life into you. And you open your eyes. What is the first thing you see? The face of God. The first thing that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, saw when they were made wasn't all the wonders of creation. It wasn't just marriage and the, I have this wonderful helper that's with me, I have this spouse. It's, what they saw, the first thing that humans saw, was God's face. And what we see here in this passage is that what we're made for is to see God's face. But sin and brokenness, our sin and brokenness, what we saw in the garden, and we live it out in a thousand different ways, is that when we sin and we turn away from God, we turn to self-fulfillment for satisfaction rather than to God for satisfaction, His ways for satisfaction. What we do is we hide. We try to cover ourselves up with all these different things, more and better. If I can just cover myself up, I can cover my shame and my nakedness. And what we see is that what God desires is a relationship with us face to face. And while we still have the curse of sin on us, what Scripture tells us is we can't actually see God face to face because it would kill us. His immeasurable holiness and our sin and brokenness, it would kill us to see him face to face. But the picture that we get in heaven is that we will see him face to face. That our relationship with God will be transformed from based on faith I know I can't see him. I get glimpses of him. I I know he speaks to us through his word. I know there's nature. And there's all these little glimpses. And this is for the doubting Thomases in our midst. That are like, I still struggle with the idea of faith in a God I cannot see. Eternity, what awaits you is that you will see God face to face. And all those doubts will melt away. And you'll no longer live by faith. But you'll live face to face with God. And not only that. We won't just experience life different in the new heavens and the earth. We won't just experience God in a different way. Not by faith, but by sight. We ourselves will be different. When it says that we see God face to face, it means that we are being, we will be transformed. 1 John 3, 2 through 3 tells us what this moment will be like. It says, beloved, we are God's children now. If you are in Christ, you are God's child now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. That God, when we stand before God, We'll stand before him as holy. We'll no longer need to hide. We'll no longer have those sins that we struggle with, that sense of I'm not enough. That will be gone forever because of what Jesus has done. We will be able to stand before God holy and blameless, face to face. There's a story that was written in the late 1800s um, in this book, The Happiness of Heaven. And the writer tells about this kind-hearted king who finds this blind, destitute orphan when he's out hunting. And he decides to take that orphan and to adopt him. And he brings him to his palace and says, you are now my son. And, And that orphan is able to eat at the king's table. He's able to be given a great education. And he's raised in the palace. Enjoying all the delights of the palace. And he comes to love the father that has adopted him. And then in the story, when he's 20 years old, he gets a surgery that allows him to see for the first time. And the boy, who was once a starving orphan, who's now been a royal prince for a number of years, living in the king's castle, something new has happened. And for us, something new will happen that something far greater, more magnificent than the food and the gardens and the libraries and the wonders of the palace, what happened is the boy is finally able to see his father face to face. To see him in his glory. And then in the story it talks about he looks down and he sees his royal robes. And in our passage it says that God's name is written on our forehead. It means that we are holy Because God is holy. And we are made like God. And the writer goes on to say, the vision of God has a transforming power. Thus the soul, when we see God as he is, is filled to overflowing. And we become beautiful with the beauty of God. So if you desire to be beautiful, and you feel like it always eludes you, that on that day when you see God face to face, you will see his beauty, and you will know your beauty. That we'll be rich with his wealth. So if you're struggling to make ends meet, it never seems like you have enough. And you think all these other people have so much more. That day when we see him face to face, we will experience his richness. And we'll holy, it says, we'll be holy with his holiness. And so if you're struggling in the midst of sin, on that day, you will finally be Holy. The things you hate about yourself that you do and you just keep losing in a battle. You'll no longer have to fight anymore. And finally it says, and and we'll be filled with the happiness of his unutterable happiness. It's a beautiful picture that we will see God face to face. And so my application for you is this. That we can live a life of sacrifice and simplicity now because we know we'll be satisfied then. So have you unconsciously bought into this idea that this world is kind of all that there is. That you got to you got to squeeze the most out of it. And specifically, what are you currently fixating on? What's that goal in your life? Or what's that relationship in your life? Or what is that thing that you want? Or that experience that you're like, if I could just get that, then I'd be satisfied. And what the scriptures say is that when we look to Jesus, not only in eternity, but in the here and now, that's where our satisfaction starts. And that's what puts all these other things which are good to be enjoyed in their right place. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I want to close with this hymn. Helen Limo wrote this hymn called The Heavenly Vision. She says, "O oh soul, are you weary in trouble? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. And life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look at his wonderful face and all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Brothers and sisters, we can live a life of simplicity and sacrifice now because we know we'll be satisfied then. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. For the eternity that you've prepared for us, we thank you for making the way for us to eternity by the person of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would give us glimpses of your face. Help us to look to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, the first week of every